Well, congratulations uh, on getting your clocks turned ahead. I know that one hour can make a big difference in a lot of families, so you made it. Uh, I want to start with three stories today. Uh, The first one uh, is recorded in a book called In One Crowded Hour by Tim Bowden, and he reports on some events that took place in 1964 in Borneo in a conflict between the Malaysians and the Indonesians. And uh, the story is told about a British officer who spoke to the Gurkhas who were out of Nepal and were fighting on behalf of uh, Malaysia and asked them whether or not they would be willing to jump out of uh, to jump out of transport planes into combat against the Indonesians. And the Gurkhas were given a, an option of doing this because uh, they had not been trained as paratroopers. Uh, nevertheless, the, the British officer was quite surprised when they came back and said no, that they were not willing to do this because they were reportedly and had been demonstrated to be quite fearless. Well, a day later, the, the same Gurkha NCO came back and he said, you know, we continue to talk about this and maybe under certain conditions we'd be willing to do this. And the officer said, well, what are the conditions? And he said, well, first of all, um, we want to we wanna be told that we're going we're gonna to land in some place that is not rocky. We'd like it to not be a, route, a rocky outcrop. We want it to be, you know, soil. And the uh, officer said, well, yeah, you're going you're gonna to drop into the jungle, so that, that's fine. And he said, well, and the second provision is we want the planes to slow down and be going as slow as possible when we jump out, and we don't want them to be any more than 100 feet in the air. And the, uh, the officer said, well, the first one is fine. We always slow down to as slow as possible when, you know, when people are jumping out. He says, but you, you can't jump from 100 feet. There's no time for your parachutes to open. At which point the NCO said, oh, parachutes. Nobody had said anything about parachutes before. Oh, we're willing to jump anywhere with parachutes. <laughs> Second story is uh, told about a band of brave uh, young missionaries uh, about a hundred years ago who attained, obtained some notoriety because uh, of their practice of packing their belongings in coffins because they were going places where the life expectancy of those on the mission field was measured in months, if not weeks, but not in years because of diseases and because of the hostile uh, reception that they were receiving from the indigenous people. One of these uh, men who went was a guy by the name of A.W. Milne. And he uh, set sail for a particular island in the South Pacific where the previous uh, missionaries had not survived uh, more than a few weeks. And uh, he was ready to do this. He said, I, I've, I've died to myself already, and so I'm, I'm willing to go. I want to take the good news of Christ. I want to I share with them a loving and gracious God, I hope, that I will be successful. And he was, and he survived uh, 35 years. When he died, they buried him in the center of the village, and the epitaph on his tombstone said, when he came, uh, there was no light, and when he left, there was no darkness. The third story uh, revolves around this spear, which I uh, bought on a trip about 20 years ago when I was in uh, Kenya. And I carried it back uh, on a plane uh, long before 9-11. It it breaks apart into three pieces, and I had it taped up 
Um, and I had asked when I was buying it, I said, how do I get this home? And they said, it's no problem. And indeed, getting on the plane in Nairobi uh, and flying to Amsterdam it was no problem. But I spent a day in Amsterdam. I had a friend who was planning a church there. And uh, when I tried to board the plane the next day in Amsterdam to fly back to the U.S., they wouldn't let me on with this. And so we went back and forth for a while. There were about three agents, and finally one of them said, look, let us call our, our boss. And so they were standing about 20 feet away, and it was obvious who the boss was when he came up. And they all engaged in a little conversation for just a, a minute or so. And then, and then somebody pointed at me, and they all, they're all looking at me, and I'm standing in line, and I sort of wave. And, and the, uh, the, the boss goes, Pah! and he hands the spear back to these guys, and he turns around, and he walks away. And I, my first reaction was, great, obviously, I'm going to get to take this spear on the plane. And my second reaction, about two seconds later, was to be offended. Because I realized, he looks at me and says, harmless, right? Uh, any of our flight attendants can handle that guy, even if he does have a spear. So, here's my point of these three stories. We are supposed to be revolutionaries. We're supposed to be like Gurkhas willing to jump out of a plane without a parachute. We're supposed to be like missionaries willing to pack our coffin. We come across a lot more like middle-aged business class travelers who have weapons but only as souvenirs. No idea how to use it and no intention uh, to do so. We are in this study of the Gospel of Luke. We've been here for two years. We have two years to go, a total of four. Some of you got college degrees in four years. Some of you got through your freshman year in four years. Uh, That's the pace that we're on. And uh, today we come to a passage I've been talking about for some time. Jesus finally, uh, officially sets out for Jerusalem. And, uh, and this is going to be quite a trip that he is going to go on. And today, um, we, we get to a, 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 another turning point in that if you, if you step back from the Gospel of Luke, if you step back from the life of Christ, you see that the crowds sort of ebb and flow. Jesus heals, and he, he provides food, and he talks about God's love and grace, and the crowds get big. And then he talks about the cost of following him, and the crowds get small. And today, we're at one of those passages where he talks about the, the cost and the crowds get small. Um, he explains what it looks like to be a revolutionary, and a lot of people walk away. The talk today is on commitment. Now, I'm, I'm 54 years old. I've been uh, a Christian for about 35 years, and, and shortly after I came to Christ, I ended up starting to lead Bible studies and, and speak at events So for 35 years, I've been keeping files on topics. And one of the oldest files that I have is this file on commitment. And there's a lot more that goes in it that I don't have here now. But I I bring this file to say, I I went through it this week. And I've got, you know, clippings from newspapers. I've got little scribbled notes from sermons that I've heard. I've got a lot of the talks that I've given uh, I've got, you know, sermons from other people. So all, the, just everything goes into these files. And uh, this past week, I read through my commitment file, especially the talks that I uh, have given over the years. And a few things jumped out at me. 
First of all, I was much uh, more fiery in my 20s and 30s. There's a lot more talk about taking the hill and gutting it out and going for it and pushing on and, you know, you got to make this happen, right? Where a lot of that, a lot of metaphors from the athletic field and just, it's always a lot of grit. So I was a lot, I was a lot more fiery when I was younger. Secondly, um, I winced when I read some of these talks because I thought, wow, I, I'm not sure that grace appeared in, in that talk at all. Right. It, there was a, so it wasn't that I wasn't in favor of grace. It wasn't that I didn't believe in grace. But you could sort of step back from that talk and say, this sort of looks like it's all about us and our performance. So it was, sometimes it was a little painful to read these. The third assessment that I took away was that I've grown soft and that I probably have not done uh, as good a job of talking about uh, the commitment that we get called to, what Jesus expects of us. And we're going to get that uh, in a big way, not just today, but as we move through chapters uh, 11 and 12, Jesus says some very hard things. He, 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 it, there's some very bracing, sort of strident comments that Jesus makes about what he expects about those people who are going to follow him. Um, it's clear he's not interested in recruiting people to play it safe. And uh, so you can't launch a revolution with, with people who want to play it safe. And he's going to make some of those comments today as we move through the last verses in Luke chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn with me. We look, pull this apart verse at a time, beginning with verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So the way Luke phrases this, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, sort of speaks to something that you get when you look at at the whole New Testament, and that is there was a plan, and none of this is surprising, and, and you know, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for you, and Jesus was already prepared to die for you, right? Time is experienced by God very differently than it's experienced by us. And so this was the plan, and, and now the plan is that Jesus heads to Jerusalem to die. He gets that, he knew that, and so now he is setting out for Jerusalem. So just by way of... Uh, of helping you understand some things. This is a, this is a map of Israel. And uh, so if you were looking at it today, you know, you'd see the West Bank is right here and the Golan Strip is down here. And of course, Egypt is down here and, you know, Syria is over there. And so this is Israel. Jesus spent most of his uh, public ministry uh, in the northern half in Galilee. So he's now heading out to Jerusalem, which is in the southern part. It, it takes, as the crow flies, it, it's 65 miles to get to Jerusalem. Israel's a small country. Okay? And uh, there's two things you need to know about this trip that he's going to make. First of all, it's going to take us 10 chapters for Jesus to go from here to here. So we're in the end of chapter 9. It's the next 10 chapters Jesus will be en route to Jerusalem. And that's because he does a lot of his teaching. A lot of the teaching he does is recorded in, uh, in Luke's gospel uh, along this trip. So, 
The second thing um, that you need to know is that it, it takes 10 chapters, and this is with him taking the shortcut. <laughs> Most Jews went around Samaria because the Jews detested the Samaritans. The Samaritans were, uh, were half-Jews. So uh, when, the, when the Jews were uh, taken, Old Testament, when they were taken into Babylonian captivity, some were left behind. And those that were left behind intermarried with the people that were around them. And these half-Jews, half-something else, were called Samaritans. And by this time, you know, 450 years later, the Samaritans have developed their own religion. Very close to Judaism, but not Judaism. And they've got their own law, and they've got their own capital, they've got their own temple, their own priests. And uh, the Jews despise the Samaritans. Which, so when Jesus is going to tell stories like uh, the parable of the good Samaritan who helps the Jew when no one else will, right? Jesus is clearly making some comments about how we think about uh, other people. But uh, Jesus is going to go right through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. This wasn't often done, but when he heads out to Jerusalem, that's what he's going to do. Now, we read on. So um, he set out verse 52, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Okay, so, you know, it's the first century. He can't just go on uh, Travelocity and and, uh, book rooms. Jesus probably has a traveling party of about 100 people with him at this point. Uh, Somebody posted their um, their status on Facebook. They see that he's traveling. People go out to, to, to walk with him. So there's about 100 people. And Galilee and Samaria uh, are made up of small villages, 100 people, 150 people. So if you're, if you're traveling with 100 people, right, you can't just stop anywhere. I mean, a whole village is going to have to get involved in caring for you and providing meals and places to stay. There's no hotels. And so Jesus sends some people on ahead to arrange for, for them to be able to stay. Verse 53, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So the Samaritans ask some questions and they find out that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, which they don't like. They've got a different capital. They want Jesus to to validate their faith, their temple, their sacrifices. And and Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And so they uh, say they're not going to allow this. Now, uh, there are four responses that we get to Jesus in, in this passage. This is the first one. And this response is basically summarized by saying, there are people who say, Jesus, I'm with you provided you're with me, right? You've got to validate my politics. You've got to validate my values. You've got to validate my choices. <laughs> and if, if you're for my family, then I'll be for, I'll be for you. But if not, then I'm, I'm, I'm not going there. You should have gotten a rock when you came in this morning, right? Like Charlie Brown, I got a rock, yeah. So... Look, this is, this is a, a, a curious object lesson. And somebody told me this morning that uh, someone, 
that they knew came home and said, I got a rock at church and I, I really don't understand why. Uh, I, I may have dozed off, which, so I'm, I'm, I'm like, really? You didn't get the point and you dozed off? I mean, that's horrible. But here's the point. I just, I, I just want to suggest that uh, you carry the rock with you for the next week and you carry it in your back pocket. And when you sit on the rock, you just remind yourself, I have to accommodate Jesus. He doesn't bend for me, right? Jesus isn't whoever we want him to be. He does, he's not a shapeshifter. He doesn't mold to our whims. He is, he is solid. God's name. I am who I am. I will be who I will be, not who you make me, <laughs> right? I am God. We're the ones that accommodate God. God doesn't bend to us. And so the Samaritans say, no, I'm with you if you're with me, and uh, this causes some problems. So um, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Okay. So said you can tell a lot about someone by their reactions, even more than by their actions. And uh, the reaction of John uh, and James, the sons of thunder, is, you know, hey, how dare they, right? Let us, they just were up in the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Elijah who had called fire down from heaven on the prophets of Baal. So they're thinking about this, right? Wouldn't that be cool? And so that, they don't even want Jesus to, to do it. They're saying, Jesus, just give us the word and we'll nuke them till they glow. How dare they, uh, how dare they confront us like this? And Jesus, uh, verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Uh, This is like the third time in chapter 9 that Jesus is rebuking the disciples. And they went to another village. And you can imagine Jesus saying, guys, really, this late in the game and you still don't get it? I'm here to save people, not to kill them. So James and John uh, are rebuked. God does judge, and we'll come to some of that teaching here in a little bit. Lots of people say, only verse they know of the Bible, judge not, and they're, they're always saying we shouldn't judge. That's not, that's not what that passage means. We're going to look at it. God does judge, but uh, Jesus came uh, to die so that people can be free. So, reading on, um, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So it's interesting here. You would think that this would be the right response, right? I will follow you wherever you want to go. Right? Jesus is going to go, finally, I'm finding somebody who's got a little backbone and substance, somebody who gets what's involved. But he doesn't say that. Now, it's interesting to say, interesting to note that he doesn't say that's not necessary. Right? I wouldn't expect that of you. Right? This is going to be hard. Just you go home and lock the doors and, and uh, attend to your own, and I'll try and do everything. And and, and bless you so that you live long and prosper and your kids get into great schools and you have good parking. I mean, that's, that's not what Jesus says to this guy. But nor does he say, as you might expect, um, thank you, good answer. 
You can almost hear the, 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 the disciples when Jesus turns to this guy who wants to follow them and he says, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You can almost see the, one of the disciples going to Jesus and going, you know, Master, we need new talking points here. You cannot keep doing this, right? You've got to offer a little encouragement to people before you, before you, you know, play bait and switch. This, this isn't going to work. Um, Jesus says, and, and it's a little hard to know exactly what's going on. Does Jesus just have insight into this man's heart because he's Jesus? Or uh, is there more going on in this conversation than Luke reports? But whatever is behind it, it's obvious that Jesus understands that this guy doesn't really understand what he's signing up for. And Jesus is not going to do a bait and switch. We often say, you know, come to Jesus and your life will work. Things will be easy, right? That's not the message that Jesus gives here. There is forgiveness of sins and eternal life, right? There are huge upsides. And, and I, think, I think it's the best life we can have. It's a life that, that has meaning and, and works. But, um, but it's interesting to note that... Um, that Jesus says, look, you just got to know how this is going to play out. I'm in charge. I'm the son of man, right? I'm God almighty. Every knee is going to bow to me. I I will reign in glory. But tonight, I don't know what I'm going to eat, and I don't know where I'm going to sleep. And that's sort of the way we're going to roll. It's going to be hard. And uh, he somehow understands that, that this man was not willing to go there. And so uh, he discourages him. Then we get a third response. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. Okay, and just interesting, he doesn't say pray to me or receive me. He says, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this seems unnecessarily harsh again. And this is one of those places where you really do need to understand the culture a little bit better and and understand that this, what this man says is, um, it's it's sort of an idiomatic statement. His father had not died. Uh, if his father had died in, in Jewish custom, he would, have been, he would not have been traveling around with Jesus. There's a whole sort of month-long protocol that would unfold, and he would not be walking uh, with Jesus at this point. This statement is sort of like, in the future, right? When I retire, when, when this happens, i got to attend to these things. But, you know, once my dad dies and the estate is settled and I know that I've got financial security, once this happens or this happens, then I'll be with you. Right? That's what's uh, behind this. It's a, um, I, I will follow you, but I have some other things that I need to attend to first. And... This doesn't work. I, I tried this um, for a while. I went to college planning to go to medical school and be a doctor. That was what I had decided in high school I wanted to do. And uh, when I got to college and I started to get involved 
in ministry, I had some, some people, some friends come up to me and say, you know what, you shouldn't be a doctor, you should go into ministry. And I said, no, 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 not going to happen. I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. And uh, I, I heard this off and on over the course of, of a year and a half. And I was very, you know, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. And my prayers were, God, I, you know, uh, this is what I want, you know, so I'm counting on you to make sure this happens. And when this happens, then, you know, I'll do what you want. And I didn't, I've shared this before, I, I can't even pinpoint the, the, the week or the month that I came to faith in Christ because there was just, there was no hallelujah chorus for me, the, you know, I didn't feel the weight of the world fall off my shoulders, I really didn't know what was going on. I can just tell you when I, as a sophomore, when I started my sophomore year in high school, I wasn't a Christ follower, and at some point early in my senior year, I realized that I was. And... So I can't describe any eureka moment, but I had that kind of moment in my college room during a J term when I was on my knees and I said, okay, I will, I will set this aside. If you don't want me to be a doctor, I will do something else, right? It's what I want, but if you want me to go down a different path, then I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in and you're in charge, I'm not. And it was, it was a transformative moment for me. Like, oh my goodness, I, I feel this incredible freedom. Now, just full disclosure, it didn't play well at home. And it didn't play well at home for the next 10 years. It didn't play well at home. But, uh, but it was this decision. It was an inflection point in my life where I had to say, okay, I get that you're in charge. And I have to just be willing to do whatever you want me to do. And, and uh, this man is not willing to do that. So I just would set that in front of you, right? Are there any conditional clauses in your life? God, I will follow you except not this. Or this has to happen. That's what this man was saying, in essence, is I need to, you know, need to, need to attend to some things. The fourth man says essentially the same thing. Another said, <clears throat> verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go, pack, go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So there's nothing... Uh, immediately wrong with saying, I, you know, I got to go tell mom and dad what, where, I'm, where I'm going, right? As a matter of fact, we see exactly that happening with uh, Elisha. When Elijah, the prophet, uh, recruited Elisha to step into his place and to, to be the prophet. Uh, Elisha was from a wealthy family. He was a farmer. They had lots of land. And uh, he, when Elijah challenges him to, to step into this, he says, okay, uh, can I go home and tell my family? And Elijah says, sure. And so we read about that. You know, Elijah is the, or Elisha is the guy that, that uh, goes home, sort of throws a little bit of a party, says, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm leaving the family business. I'm going to go be, do this, pro, be a prophet. I'll write, pray for me. 
Uh, and then he has a big bonfire and he burns his plow, right? I mean, you remember Cortez is sort of famous for doing this in the early 1500s. Spanish explorer sails to Mexico. Uh, all previous efforts by the Spanish to colonize Mexico have failed. There's five million uh, Mexicans. Cortez has like 500 uh, men with him in 11 ships. They land in Mexico, and the first thing he does is he has them burn the boats, right? Burn the ships. Uh, as I say, there is no plan B, right? We're, we're going forward. Uh, the odds are 10,000 to 1, but we're going forward. And so that's what Elisha is doing when he burns the plow, right? He says, I'm all in. So the, 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 the spirit of what Christ is saying here is the technical point. Not, I can't tell mom and dad what I'm doing, but it's, you know, you got to be all in. And, and what this guy is saying, in, in essence, is, I'm with you, I'll be a revolutionary, but I've got to have this whole other, I've got to have control of this part of my life. And Jesus just, that, that's not the way it works. That's not the level of commitment that he accepts. Jesus doesn't do second, right? He doesn't share first. It's like, I mean, if, are you in? If you're in, you're in. You don't have to be in. But if you're in, then this is what it looks like. And that's what he's saying uh, on this trip. Well, as I said, I read through this, uh, this folder that I have on uh, commitment and all these talks that I've given and sermons other people have given. And I just reflected on that this week. And, and as much for my own self uh, as for the sermon, I jotted down a few points to reflect on. Uh, number one, commitment is expected. Earlier in chapter 9, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross, die to self, and get in line. Right? Single file behind me, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. If you're following, that's where we're headed. And this kind of commitment is uh, what we sign up for. Lenin once said, communists are dead men on furlough. It's essentially what Jesus said earlier. If you're in, (laughs) die to self, join the cause, be in. This, uh, This radical call of Jesus is very different than the Uh, spiritualized version of the American dream that we often hear or the Americanized version of the gospel that is often proclaimed. We are following a penniless man who had no place to call home and who was murdered for insurrection. In Christ's eyes, radical isn't radical, it's normal. That's what he's looking for. Commitment is expected. Number two, commitment is hard. I think it's always hard. I think at times it's easier. I think as we grow, it gets easier in some ways. But it's always hard. The truth is, we like the idea of commitment. Right? We like inspirational stories, and we like the Horatio Algers, and we like the, the athletes that persevere and, and triumph. We like, you know, we're drawn to the before and after pictures of the diets and getting in shape, and we go, I want to be that person. But in reality, 
When it comes to saying, I got to eat that and not this, I don't really want to be that. I got I to do this instead of that. Yeah, I'm not up for that. So it's always hard. Commitment is hard. We see this in the Old Testament. The Jews struggle with commitment throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, right, the crowds ebb and flow. When, when it's all about the promise, easy, eternal life, forgiveness, right, healing, they sign up. And then when it's like, okay, this is, this is a commitment, then the crowds winnow. Paul is always, in his letters, you see this subtext of his frustration with the lack of commitment of uh, so many of the people in the churches. And, and in the last book, the book of Revelation, Jesus is writing to the seven churches. One of the churches is in Laodicea. And, and he says, right, you know, be hot or cold. Don't do this lukewarm stuff, right? I can't stand lukewarm. Spit you out of my mouth. And so commitment is always uh, a challenge. Number three, culture can make it easier or harder. Okay? That's just sort of a, cultures can be good or bad. Uh, ethnicities are all good. Cultures can be good or bad. Cultures that are good sort of help you raise your game, provide boundaries that, that sort of force you to do the right thing when you might be weak and not want to do that. Cultures that are bad sweep you in the wrong direction, and you've got to fight a current that's pulling you in the wrong direction. Cultures can be good or bad. Our culture is mixed. There's some really good things about our culture, but there are some, uh, there's deterioration happening in our culture. And I think that, uh, that the next the next 10 to 15 years, who knows, but I think, I think it'll be hard and get harder to be a Christ follower in this, in this culture. It's not, it's not entirely a bad thing. Uh, it might just make what we're called to a little bit clearer. And even if it gets really hard, I doubt that it's ever as hard uh, for us as it is, as it has been for many people their entire lives, right? Throughout history and around the world, it's a lot harder to be a Christ follower in a lot of other places than it is here. So, but it's, it's, it's hard. Um, and that leads to one of the other points that I would make, is that we just have to go all in. I, I, one of the little clippings that I found that I had filed away years ago uh, I don't know who said this, but uh, it was clever. And they said, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Right? So... Yeah, we, God doesn't sell $3 worth. We have to go all in. Now, there's a number of other things. Uh, my list sort of got long. There's a number of other things that I scribbled down, noting, um, for instance, that our wills are weak. If we want to be committed, it's going to have to require supernatural strength of God. Uh, additionally, um, commitment is is 
hard today because whatever level of commitment or non-commitment you're comfortable with, you can find people to tell you you're in the right spot. Right? I mean, that's sort of, there's a spectrum out there. And wherever you're at, there's a lot of people that will say, yes, you're at the right spot. If this looks like what Christ is calling us to, and this is completely walking in the other direction, and you're here, chances are your friends are here. And, and your friends are going to tell you you're in the right spot, whether they articulate it or not. They're going to reinforce that spot. And the people that are here are saying, oh, the people up there, they're weird. Yeah, you don't want to be that. You don't want to be that. Don't, don't, don't be like that. That's, that's taking things too far. The people that are here are going, oh, yeah, they're weak. They're, they're crazy. They're, they don't have passion, right? So wherever you're at, you will find people that will say that's the right spot, which is why we've got to look really hard, if we're going to be Christ followers, at how Christ defines following him. There's a lot of other things to say. I'm going to end with two points. First of all, I want to say to you, commitment is possible. What we're called to is not impossible. We see Herculean levels of commitment out there every day. I see it every day. see it in musicians, right, who practice for hours and hours and hours and hours in scales and, 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 and in, their, in their events to be better, in their instruments to be better. Additionally, you see uh, this level of commitment in athletes, right? You just over and over and over uh, are going to do what needs to be done in order to be able to excel. So the kind of commitment that we're called to is possible. And finally, um, we don't get specifics. I know that at least what I would like is I would like, what I would really like is sort of a level, a a description of the minimum requirements to be committed, right? If I could just see exactly what's the least I've got to do to be committed, right? That's what I'd like. And uh, we don't get that. What we get in Scripture are statements like these from Jesus, and then we get a we get a a backdrop that suggests that there are a, there's a cadence to life that we're to follow. There are there are spiritual habits and practices that we're to engage in, and if we engage in these things, they will pull us along, right? And we talk about these all the time: worship, attending weekly worship services, Sabbath rest that goes along with that, being connected to other Christ followers that are going to hold you accountable. Growing by daily Bible reading and, and prayer, right? Serving other people, sharing our life, worship, connect, grow, serve, share. Well, this is what we see that we get called to. And if we do that, we can move forward. So I, I just leave you with this question. How am I doing on the commitment scale, right? Am I, am I trending well? Talk about that in your small groups this week. And I leave you with this verse again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, in your plan, everything that needed to be done for us to... um, receive eternal life, to be redeemed, justified, has been done by Christ. So we don't have to live with this ongoing fear. At the same time, Father, I confess to you that uh, we often 
play that grace card and, um, and grow soft. And I don't want to be soft. I don't think anyone wants to be defined as being soft. We want to be gracious, but we also want to be the, the kind of men and women that uh, understand what we're being called to and, uh, and don't look like, you know, middle-class tourists collecting souvenirs, but are people that, uh, that you can use to advance your kingdom. So we pray to that end, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.